The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Murray. Dr. Murray is one of the world's leading authorities on natural medicine. He's the author of the best-selling Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine and nearly 30 other books on health-related topics. Dr. Murray is back on Health Watch today to talk about his book, What the Drug Companies Won't Tell You and Your Doctor Doesn't Know, the alternative treatments that may change your life and the prescriptions that could harm you, and particularly about five common over-the-counter and pharmaceutical medications that are in most people's medicine cabinets that, if taken long-term, can actually cause more harm than good. Welcome back to Health Watch, Dr. Michael Murray. Oh, it's my pleasure. So there's a conundrum when it comes to over-the-counter medications and, and some of the more frequently prescribed uh, pharmaceuticals in the sense that they often... Uh, give short-term benefit, but we're learning more and more can have long-term uh, complications. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I think, uh, you know, many drugs are simply biochemical band-aids that are designed to suppress symptoms, but they don't really address the underlying issues that uh, are the cause of the, the symptom or the health condition. Well, let's start with one of the more common ones in your list of five. Uh, when you talk of a lot of people are taking antacids or acid blockers for heartburn or acid reflux, right. what is the downside of doing that? Well, uh, the downside is that when you block the secretion of hydrochloric acid, you're really blocking the one of the initial steps in the digestive process. So you impair digestion and you disrupt gastrointestinal function, and that can lead to not only nutrient deficiency, but also an increased risk for uh, serious infections. Uh, you know, the side effects of these powerful acid-blocking drugs are, are very severe and significant, yet uh, you know, they're available over the counter. People are taking them for uh, a lot of uh, digestive complaints that really might be better served by taking digestive aids that, that might include taking more acid. When you block the secretion of, of acid, you impair the, uh, the assimilation of many nutrients. Uh, so as a result, we see an increased risk for osteoporosis and, and fractures when people start taking these drugs. Uh, they impair the absorption of various B vitamins, so they're being linked to dementia. Uh, these drugs disrupt uh, the gastrointestinal flora. They're associated with an increased risk of gastrointestinal infections, the risk of a C. difficile, uh, a type of diarrhea caused by uh, Clostridium, has increased 20-fold since the introduction of these drugs. And these drugs carry with them a significant increased risk for developing pneumonia. So <laughs> uh, they're really not uh, suitable for, for long-term use, and yet, uh, boy, you know, so many people rely on these drugs uh, for these digestive complaints, and it, it's just too bad because uh, only about 10% of people with uh, gastroesophageal reflux or peptic ulcers or dyspepsia actually secrete too much acid. More people don't secrete enough hydrochloric acid, and those uh, people can have some of the same symptoms. 
uh, as people that uh, secrete too much acid. So it really isn't as simple as people think about, uh, you know, taking care of their, their symptoms. They need to, to really ask the, the question, what's going on here and how can I, can I, can, can I prevent it? And there's a lot that can be done with, with uh, diet. Uh, in the treatment of gastroesophageal reflux, as well as uh, supplements that can help with uh, various digestive complaints. Well, do you think part of the problem, Dr. Murray, is that physicians aren't in the habit of discussing the the downside of medication prescriptions and allowing the patient to make their own uh, sort of risk assessment for themselves? I think they get sucked into providing palliative care. Simply, you know, uh, <laughs> helping that person feel better as fast as they can uh, and not really thinking of the long-term uh, consequences. And we see this not only with the antacids but with some of the other drugs on the list. Another great example are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs used in the treatment of, of uh, arthritis, particularly osteoarthritis, which is the most common form of arthritis. In this form, what's occurring is that there's a degeneration of cartilage. And the issues with the drugs is that drugs like ibuprofen, aspirin, as well as newer drugs like Celebrex, they work to block the production of compounds that cause pain and inflammation. But the side effect that isn't well known with these drugs is that they also impair the body's ability to make cartilage. So you end up accelerating the degeneration of the cartilage. That's what causes osteoarthritis. And the use of these drugs is associated with acceleration of osteoarthritis and the increased likelihood of having to have a hip replacement or a knee replacement. Uh, these drugs also are associated with, with immediate side effects, uh, digestive complaints. A lot of people end up taking antacids to counteract some of the, the damage that's caused to the intestinal tract by these drugs. Uh, about 7,000 people die each year from, from ulcers caused by ibuprofen and aspirin. And then the newer drugs like Celebrex, Vioxx, and Bextra, these drugs have killed more Americans than we lost in the Vietnam War. These drugs cause serious heart damage. So, uh, again, uh, they're really not addressing the underlying cause. Uh, on the flip side, we can build a healthier, uh, more structurally sound cartilage if we give the body the tools it needs to build cartilage. And virtually all known nutrients are involved in cartilage manufacture, uh, vitamins, minerals. And, and the rate-limiting step in the manufacture of cartilage components is glucosamine. Now, normally we make enough glucosamine, but as we age, many people lose the ability to make sufficient amounts of glucosamine. So they benefit by taking glucosamine as a supplement. And studies have shown that taking glucosamine as a supplement can actually increase cartilage thickness and relieve the pain and loss of joint function associated with osteoarthritis. And what about the the relatively large National Institute of Health study on glucosamine and chondroitin? I think it was on osteoarthritis of the knee that found mixed results in terms of its benefit for pain relief. There, there's a significant uh, placebo effect in osteoarthritis. And uh, what the study did not show was that there was that much of a, a greater benefit uh, of glucosamine compared to a placebo in this study. Now, uh, when they when they look at subsets of the population in this study of people who were more severely affected, 
then the results are quite clear in favor of glucosamine. The, the people that had more severe illness, uh, they did not experience as, as much of a placebo response. And so in those subsets, we see a significant advantage. Then when you look at longer-term studies with glucosamine, we start seeing objective improvements, and that's always the best. Subjective improvements, those are tough because those can be influenced by attitude, belief, expectations. But when we look at the effects of glucosamine and other cartilage-building supplements over a long period of time on cartilage formation, on thickness of the cartilage, uh, we see significant objective uh, evidence of efficacy. So, uh, you know, that, that's my take on, on the studies. Uh, well, uh, we had uh, Gretchen Reynolds on, the, the health and fitness columnist for the New York Times, uh, talking about various uh, myths in, in exercise physiology. And, and one of the things she did talk about, which I think mirrors what you're saying, is in people who do a lot of cortisone injections for pain, obviously those are, are can be really effective for six months to a year. Uh, they actually have a higher incidence of relapse of injury than people who don't get the cortisone shots. And uh, do you think that's a similar thing around uh, cartilage degeneration in the joint with cortisone, for instance, versus uh, aspirin and ibuprofen? Yeah, you know, cortisone is well known to impair... Um... Uh, connective tissue manufacture. You're going to see greater uh, destruction uh, with with cortisone injections. Just the nature of of the of, of the molecule. It, it's great for reducing inflammation, but it comes at at a price. And uh, you know, long term, what we want to do is we want to give the body the tools it needs to be healthy. And there's a lot that we can do to improve the health of that cartilage. What's interesting about cartilage is that if you take a cartilage cell out of the body and you place it in a nutrient-rich environment, it regains its youth, it regains its function. Our cartilage cells are designed to live a lifetime. If that can happen in a test tube, theoretically, that can happen in the body. The problem with <laughs> the cell in the body is that there's not an active blood supply to that cartilage cell. Things have to diffuse or, or travel to that cartilage cell without an active blood supply. So sometimes it takes a little longer. And there's a lot that we can do in naturopathic medicine to kind of speed up that process. Exercise is important. Physical therapy can be very helpful. Uh, you know, techniques like uh, uh, ultrasound and diathermy, uh, techniques that can increase the delivery of nutrition to that cartilage cell can, can really uh, amplify and quicken the response. But there's no question that anyone who has a, a, a degenerative condition, whether it's of the, the cartilage, of the brain, of the heart, that we need super nutrition. We need to supply the tools, the building blocks that that tissue needs in order to function in a healthful way. And uh, the problems with many of the drugs is that uh, they simply... Uh, in many cases, suppress the symptoms but end up causing more harm than good. Uh, another great example of that are sleeping pills. Studies have now shown, without a question, sleeping pills increase mortality risk in a in a unbelievable way. Uh, I, I've made on my, my website 
drmurray.com, available uh, a free version of my book on stress, anxiety, and insomnia, what the drug companies won't tell you and your doctor doesn't know. I want people to go to my website, drmurray.com, sign up for my email newsletter, and download this book because there's vital information in this book on the harm that's caused by sleeping pills. There have now been 19 very well-done population-based studies that show that when people start taking these drugs, they, they, uh, their health starts spiraling downward. Uh, these drugs are not only associated with an increased risk of mortality, they increase the risk of all causes of mortality, they increase the risk of developing cancer by 35%. They also increase the risk of dementia by 300%. And we all have, have seen this in, in <laughs> elderly people that, uh, that have started using these drugs. The, these drugs basically impair the brain's ability to recharge, and it, when the brain isn't getting recharged, it just doesn't function with vitality, and uh, that means that uh, short-term memory and and uh, cognition, uh, mental function in general, is greatly declined. Uh, these drugs really uh, amplify the 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 effects of aging on the human brain, and. Uh, they are also associated with increasing the risk of depression. These are bad drugs. They really are. Uh, they're bad drugs because they're they're highly addictive. They have a long list of side effects, and they're not suitable for long-term use. Yet, 12.5% of our adult population are using these drugs. I'm talking about drugs like Valium, Lunesta, Halcyon, Ambien, Xanax. Uh, these are just, I think, really poor choices in addressing issues related to anxiety, uh, insomnia, and uh, related conditions associated with stress. You know, there's better ways to deal with these conditions. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today with Dr. Michael Murray about five common drugs that may be in your medicine cabinet that could be causing you more harm than good. So, Dr. Murray, what are some of your favorite interventions for uh, for sleep to enhance sleep and help people uh, address insomnia well i am chuckling because you know the first thing i i usually do is is start talking to people about their caffeine intake we live in an over caffeinated society and while some people can tolerate huge amounts of caffeine and not have it impact their sleep quality the truth is that most Americans are consuming way too much caffeine as well as other stimulants, and it's impacting their ability to sleep. So uh, one of the first things I do is is uh, have them eliminate caffeine for, for 10 days, and also I'll take a look at uh, of, of their prescription drug use. There, there are over 300 drugs that are associated with poor sleep quality. And uh, if we can help people get off of those drugs, it may be drugs for high blood pressure or other cardiovascular conditions. Uh, it may be related to you know uh, some of these drugs that are used in asthma. I mean, it could be any of a number of drugs that can lead to impaired sleep quality. So that's something else that I look at. As far as natural products, believe it or not, the products that, that I've had most success with are those that improve blood sugar control. 
when our blood sugar levels are fluctuating throughout the day and night, what happens every time there's a rapid drop in blood sugar, it causes the release of cortisol and adrenaline. These are adrenal hormones that wake people up. The most common form of insomnia is called sleep maintenance insomnia. In this form, people are able to get to sleep, but they wake up two, three, four, five hours later, and they can't get back to sleep. Well, what's causing them to wake up is usually a quick drop in blood sugar followed by an increase in cortisol and adrenaline, and it takes a little while for that adrenaline to burn off. That's why they can't get back to sleep for you know, an hour, hour and a half. So uh, what we found to be quite useful in helping people improve their sleep quality is eating a low glycemic load diet and using a special dietary fiber matrix called PGX at every meal to help stabilize their blood sugar level. If people can stabilize their blood sugar levels throughout the day and night, that generally equates to getting a better night's sleep. And of course, there are a handful of clinically proven natural products that improve sleep quality. Melatonin, 5-HTP, L-theanine, valerian. Uh, these can be used, uh, but again, uh, uh, just like with the drugs, we don't want to uh, rely overly uh, on these these natural sleep uh, agents until we really take a look at answering the question, well, what's going on? Why am I not getting a good night's sleep? Sometimes it does come down to the fact that as we age, uh, we need to supplement melatonin. We need to take advantage of some of these uh, natural sleep agents. Uh, but you know, if we look at the population as a whole, there's no question that the biggest health issue that most Americans face is faulty blood sugar control. When our abdomen when these abdominal fat cells start growing, uh, they start secreting compounds that that block the action of insulin. And insulin resistance is the major health concern of most Americans. If a person's waist is larger than their hips, they're likely insulin resistant. They're likely on this blood sugar roller coaster. And you know, when we look at any bodily function, whether it's immune health, cardiovascular health. Uh, or sleep quality, uh, you can make a very strong case that the underlying issue in most people is this insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is an epidemic. We've got 8 out of 10 Americans over the age of 25 that are overweight or clinically obese. By 2020, which is now only seven years away, it's estimated that over 60% of the adult population will be clinically obese, and about 30% of those, or excuse me, 50% of those, so 30% of American adults will have type 2 diabetes. And definitely, if you have type 2 diabetes, you're insulin resistant. Well, certainly, if you go back to diet as, and look for things in your diet that could be exacerbating your sleep, I would imagine you're probably also going to find this, some of the things that are culprits around your acid reflux or other other health issues. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't hear the first part. Oh, that's okay. Um, I, I'm assuming that if you go back to the you know your diet and lifestyle as and look for the source of your your sleep issues, you might also uncover some of the things in your diet and lifestyle that are causing your other symptoms, like your your acid reflux, for instance. Yeah, uh, you know, um, 
We live in a stress-filled society, and uh, it, it, the, one of the reasons why I'm making this book available uh, uh, on my website in PDF form is because stress is such a uh, it's, it's, it's such a, <laughs> a big issue for most people. I, I liken stress to straws on a camel's back, and. So we can eliminate as many straws as we can through diet and lifestyle choices. Uh, and we can also strengthen that camel's back through <laughs> appropriate uh, diet and lifestyle choices. Uh, so what we see with stress is that with stress, we're going to see uh, kind of our weakest links start breaking. And for some people, it may be their sleep. For others, it may be their immune system. For others, it may be their digestive system. For others, it may be their heart. So we all have uh, weaknesses uh, in, in one sense or another in our system. And uh, so those are the areas where stress is really going to to rear its, its ugly head. So, you know, taking steps to reduce uh, the effects of stress has a huge effect in improving uh, basically any condition that we we might be dealing with because uh, in many cases the stress is an underlying factor that's making that symptom uh, appear. So uh, steps to reduce stress, uh, again, I, I want to hammer the fact that we're an over-caffeinated society. When you drink um, a caffeine source, you're basically amplifying the fight-or-flight response or the stress response. Uh, so, you know, pay attention to that. See how you, it makes you feel. Uh, it, it's, it's just it, it's just such a problem out there, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle that has to be stopped. People don't get a good night's sleep, so they start drinking more coffee or taking some energy shots and that impairs sleep quality even further so then you know they're 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 uh next day they're they're taking more caffeine and uh, it's just it, it, it's got to stop if we can help them get a good night's sleep reduce their stress in their life and uh start making some positive changes in their diet and lifestyle they can have an abundance of energy uh, and uh, uh, when there's more energy in the body, uh, you know, a lot of these symptoms simply go away. Well, Dr. Murray, there's, in the final minutes of the show, maybe we can just touch uh, briefly on serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I know that we definitely know in science that poor sleep quality and poor mood are linked. What are, um, what are some of the reasons why someone wouldn't want to jump right to an antidepressant necessarily for a low mood? Well, again, I think that it, it's a it's a it's a it's a biochemical band aid. It's not uh, addressing the underlying cause. Uh, serotonin is a critical brain chemical. We get serotonin from tryptophan, which is an amino acid uh, in our food. Uh, our brain should be able to convert that tryptophan into serotonin, but there are certain factors that impair that conversion: stress, uh, excess cortisol insulin resistance, nutrient deficiency, and uh, various hormonal disturbances. So uh, I said earlier that we could look at just about any condition and we can link it to insulin resistance. When you look at um, the 
effects of insulin resistance on our brain chemistry, it's, it's quite significant. And one of those effects is that, it, that, that we experience low levels of serotonin. And uh, I just think that uh, we're not addressing the underlying cause. Now, the reality is with these SSRIs, whether it's Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, whatever, they are really not that much more effective over a placebo. About 90% of the benefits that are attributed to these drugs are seen in the placebo group. Now, uh, one of the problems with these drugs is that some people are uh, significantly adversely affected. That it, These drugs will cause agitation, uh, and uh, they can really make the situation worse, especially in younger people. So, uh, you know, I, I really question whether we should be giving these drugs to adolescents and <laughs> uh, young adults. I think that uh, we really should be focusing on uh, non-drug therapies uh, for boosting mood and, and improving uh, behavior. I think that that's really the the long-term strategy, teaching people how to take control of their lives, helping them have more empowerment and a sense of, of control in their lives is very, very important. Cognitive therapy has been shown to outperform these SSRIs because you're teaching people how to, how to process and grow in, in a way to improve their mood rather than relying on a drug that doesn't change their life. Uh, to any significant degree, and the 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 myth is that these drugs you take them and you feel better. They're happy pills. The reality is is that uh, boy, they're associated with a, a long list of side effects. About 20% of people taking these SSRIs experience significant weight gain. I'm not talking about just a few pounds. I'm talking about significant weight gain, and uh, that's a a little known and uh, side effect. But it's a very serious side effect for a lot of people because, uh, you know, it's one thing to to <laughs> to be depressed and take a pill and 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 then uh, experience a forty fifty pound weight gain. It's just you know that it, it, it's it's it, that's not not the answer. The answer is, you know, trying to to get at the root cause and address that root cause through natural means. And Dr. Murray, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we can't walk our listeners through some of those natural means for low mood. But perhaps you can mention your your website again if people want to look at the download. Yeah, the, the, the website is uh, drmurray.com, uh, and it's either Dr. Murray or D O C T O R M U R R A Y. Lots of great free information. I just I want people to sign up for my email newsletter because it's my way of getting the message out there of some really important clinical work that's being done with natural medicines, diet, nutritional supplements, lifestyle. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we want to entice people to sign up for the newsletter by giving them a free PDF version of this book on stress, anxiety, and insomnia. It also dis discusses depression in there. So uh, we didn't get to that, but people can go to the, the website, download the book, and read up on it. Thanks for being on Health Watch again, Dr. Murray. Oh, my pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. We're talking today with Dr. Michael Murray, the author of what the drug companies won't tell you and your doctor doesn't know, the alternative treatments that may change your life and the prescriptions that could harm you. If you miss part of today's program, you'll be able to go to kboo.fm backslash healthwatch later today, or you can go to the iTunes podcast store and put healthwatch in the search bar, uh, one word, healthwatch, and, and pull up the archives. 
Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.